What's going on, Faith Church? Good to see everybody here. Hey, my name is Steve Husky. I'm the lead pastor, and it is our privilege to have you in the house. If you're a first-time guest, man, thanks so much for being here. Let's give a big shout-out to our Faith, Faith Church family up in Lawrenceburg. Good to have you guys tuning in. Uh, I just want you to know, man, come next week ready. We are excited about this next season of missions work here at Faith Church. Um, this is a 10-year commitment we're making to this care point. We're going to go and adopt these kids, help provide for them. We're going to transform the community they live in, and it's going to be exciting. Life change isn't just going to happen here. It's going to happen in an area in Guatemala, and we get to be a part of it. Amen? So come next, re next week ready, and in the, in the months and years ahead, uh, we're excited about what God's going to do. Also, man, uh, so people have the opportunity to give blood today. Anybody give blood yet? Holy cow. Y'all need to go give blood. <laughs> I, know it's, I know it's odd on a Sunday, but it's an opportunity to stop back and give some. I've given blood lots of times, um, and most of the time it went really well. There was the one time I walked in, and they looked at me, they're like, well, you're kind of a big guy, which was like, you're fat. That's really a nice way of saying that. You're kind of a big guy, and they do this thing. I don't know if they still do it. It's been a little while where they do double plasma. And I'm like, okay. And so did anybody here ever race to fill your bag, see how fast you can fill that baby up? Oh, yeah. So I filled, filled it up and got up. I walked away from giving blood, and I felt fine. And it was actually a blood drive at our previous church uh, that we served at. And there were some ladies there. And like, Pastor, come on over here and sit down. I'm like, no, I'm fine. I, I need to get back to work. And like, no, have some cookies. So I was like, okay. And I'll never forget, I sat down, and I felt fine. But as soon as I sat down, I remember I was talking. Like, and I passed out. And my manhood is not recovered. I've not given blood since. <laughs> So maybe, maybe today, maybe today's the day. Well, hey, listen, uh, we're in a brand, we're in a series we started several weeks ago entitled "Slippery Slope." Everybody say that "Slippery Slope." The purpose of the series is to talk about this idea of temptation. That every one of us in this room, and sometimes uh, we we recognize this, sometimes we don't, but temptation is a part of our spiritual journey. Temptation, this this idea that we are attracted to things, attracted to people, attracted to decisions. And if we give in to those things, that's what it means to fall into temptation or to fall into sin. Now, you don't have to be a spiritual person. You could be brand new to church. You may have no faith background at all. And you still understand that temptation is a real deal, that we feel the pull to make decisions that it's easy to recognize are not always the best decisions. And so we've been talking about things like um, situational awareness, knowing who we are, knowing the environment we find ourselves, knowing the friends we're hanging out with, that if you'll have a situational awareness. You are far less likely to fall on the slippery slope of sin. And uh, last week we talked about uh, falling gracefully, that even though you sometimes fall into sin, even though you fall and give into the temptation, there is a right way to do it, that God's grace can pick you up and put you on your feet again. And so next week we're going to finish this series off, but I want to make sure that you're here uh, today, uh, several, uh, probably, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, my son had a birthday party over at the local skating rink. And so, you know, we took him, was hanging out, and, and I'm kind of a people watcher, and there's, there's no better place to be a people watcher than in a skating rink, because that's free entertainment, right? And so, you know, I'm watching people, and I, I notice there's this little, little tribe of girls, there's this little clique of girls, and none of them can really skate well, but they're all trying to help each other out. So they're all linking arms, and they're all, you know, trying to go around. And here's what's funny is every time one of them would lose their balance and fall, they all fell. And this just happened over and over. I mean, you think at one point they would, they would realize, but they didn't because they were connected. When one person would fall, they would all fall. 
And while that was funny then for that group of girls just falling in a skating rink, the truth is, and here's what I want you to know where we talk about today in this big idea of temptation and falling, is that every one of us in this room, you're connected to somebody else. We're in this room, we're connected to friends and family, we're connected to our community, we're connected to each other, we're connected to our workplaces. And I want you to know that when you fall, you don't fall in a vacuum. Your fall affects and infects other people. We don't fall alone. In fact, if you're taking notes just right out of the gate, your fall influences their future. When it comes to your kids, when it comes to the connections you have, again, you don't fall alone, and your fall can often influence other people. I want you just, just to really put this in perspective. If, if I fell, and I don't mean like just normal struggles and challenges I have, but if I was kind of front-page news fall, like it would affect you. It would affect a lot of you in your spiritual journey. It would affect my wife. It would affect... My kids, it's not just my sin and my struggle and my fall. It's ours because we're connected. And it's not just because I'm the guy on the platform. Everybody in this room, come on, you're connected. Everybody say, I'm connected. You're connected, and if you fall, your fall influences people around you. And so I, I know that's, that's a challenge to think about, but that's, that's the truth. And so today, I want to jump into a story, and I want us to go on a journey together. I want us to look at a story about two twin brothers found in the Old Testament by the name of Jacob and Esau. And I want us to look for a minute of how not just the temptation, how uh, this guy Esau wrestles through it, but I want us to see eventually how his fall influenced so many other people than just himself. Because again, I want you to walk out of this room today with the weight of understanding to be intentional in the decisions you make because they don't only affect just you. Again, I, some of you guys, we've seen this just happen recently in culture. This is a news, a news story that happens all the time. We see it on the internet. Some of you have seen this where uh, an employee, a, a minimum wage employee, a 16, 17-year-old kid working in a restaurant writes something foolish on someone's receipt. How many people have seen this before or does something foolish or mouths off? And we see this happen that people get on social media and they make a, a cultural decision or a community decision to boycott that business based on the decision of a minimum wage worker. So again, we have this kid who made a decision that now has impacted the business of the owner because we're connected, and when we fall, we fall together. And so let's jump into this story with these two twin brothers by the name of Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25. I want us all, come on, read this together with me. It says, and when the time came to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she did indeed have twins. Their first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat, so they named him Chewbacca. <laughs> that was his junior high name, not his real name. Then the other twin was born with the, his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. Can you imagine being 60 years old having twins? Sweet Lord Jesus. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, and he was an outdoor, outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. And Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game that Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And one day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. And Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. And this is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? 
But Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left, and he showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. This story, if, if you want to really title it a very simple way, you could title it The Trade. Everybody say The Trade. And you can see right away, may, you may not be familiar with some of this language, and I'll help us to maneuver through it. But ultimately, if you've not caught it, it's a bad trade. It's a very imbalanced and upside down and not, uh, unequal trade. This kind of trade would be like this. If you're walking down the road, you're at Bridge Street with your wife, and you're out shopping one afternoon, you're arm in arm having a romantic weekend together, and some guy walks up to you and says, hey, I'll trade you my watch for your wife. Because some of you are like, what kind of watch is it? (laughs) Come on, nobody's taking that trade. Nobody's going to trade. Nobody's going to trade the inexpensive for the irreplaceable. I'm not trading my, my wife for a watch. Let me give you another one. How many of you in this room, would I, if, if I offered, would trade a church pen for your 401K? I mean, most of you don't need to trade it anyways because you, you've stolen lots of them. <laughs> oh, Jesus knows. Do you really not want to go to heaven for a church pen, really? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But think about it. Nobody in this room, if I said, hey, I'll give you a church pen for a 401k. Nobody's taking that deal. Nobody's trading. Nobody's trading a watch for a wife. Nobody's trading a pen for a 401k. And if you need to understand this, here's the trade. This guy by the name of Esau, he traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. And it may not make sense, but it's the same kind of trade. It's upside down. It's not fair. It's not even close to equal. And this guy got robbed out of something so significant. In fact, Genesis 25, 31, here's, here's this word. It says, all right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as a firstborn son. Now, what does this mean? Again, culturally at this time, this is something that doesn't really bear weight on our culture, but at the time, to be the firstborn son was significant. You know, today, we're just happy if we can, you know, if if God blesses us with a child, if it's a son or a daughter, we're excited either. But in that time, especially for the husband in the family, the dad in the family, while he might be happy to get a daughter, what he wanted more than anything was to have a son. Because a son is who he passed his name through and passed his heritage through and passed his inheritance through. And so when you, ha- when you were the firstborn son, when you were the oldest son, it was an important position in the family. And it came with it, this term, the firstborn. Everybody shout the firstborn. And Esau, again, the story is about these two twin brothers, Esau and Jacob. The Bible tells us that Rebekah's pregnant with these twins. Esau comes out first, but Jacob so desperately wants to be first, he's grabbing the heel of his brother Esau coming out of the womb. And so Esau is the firstborn son. Here's what it meant to be the firstborn. A couple things. Number one, there's four things. You're taking notes. If you were the firstborn son, if you had the birthrights of the firstborn, number one, it meant this. It meant you had paternal favor. You were dad's favorite. Anybody here, were you the favorite in the home growing up? Raise your hand. If you can't raise your hand, your parents didn't do a good job raising you because a good parent makes every kid think they're the favorite. Come on, somebody. I can tell you who my favorite is. You want to know? I ain't saying from the platform. Are you kidding me? (laughs) But you had paternal favor. Dad loved everybody, but the firstborn son was was the child in the home that he loved the most. The second part of being the firstborn son was that, um, that you were the priest of the home. 
that you were the one that made sacrifices on behalf of the family. You were the one that went to the temple and prayed on behalf of the family. It was almost this idea that the firstborn son somehow had a closer, a closer connection to heaven, almost had a, ba- a better connection with God than anybody else. He was the priest of the home. The third thing, the firstborn son had prosperity. That when dad died and he divided up all his stuff amongst his kids, the firstborn son got a double portion of the inheritance. Come on, baby, twice as much. So everybody got a little something. He got twice as much, which I'm not the firstborn son. I'm the youngest, but how many people know now the youngest is the favorite? Come on, baby. Woo! Which means I get twice as many bills as when my parents pass away. Come on, you get, so again, you get paternal favor. You're you're considered the priest of the home. You have prosperity. And fourth, you have position. Everybody shout position. The firstborn son had the ability to do business on behalf of the father. There was a signet ring that was in the family that you would do business, that you would transact business with. The oldest son could wear the ring, could go into town, and could get into, into any business deal on behalf of the father's name. Now, I know, again, that doesn't seem like a lot to us, but for Esau, he had this place of prominence and blessing and position and ultimately Esau sold his significance for a snack. He gave away this place of prominence and position for something so insignificant as a bowl. He traded his birthright for a bowl. And you look at it and you're like, this guy got robbed. This guy got ripped off. Man, I would never do something like that. Well, let me put it in context for us today because most of us in this room at one time or another, we have been an Esau. We have traded who we are in Christ for something that didn't really last. See, the Bible tells us that, Bible tells us that, uh, that Jesus is the firstborn. In fact, that word is used over and over again by the Apostle Paul, not saying that Jesus ultimately was ever born in eternity. He's the eternal Son of God. It is a word designating the position of Jesus. Let me tell you something about the Savior we serve. He is a person of authority. He transacts business on behalf of the Father. He has a place of position. He is the favored Son. Come on, somebody. And he carries all the blessings of heaven. But here's the good news. Jesus... He didn't hoard the blessing of the firstborn on himself. He's passed it down to the rest of the sons and daughters in the family. That's you and I. The Bible says that you and I, that we are co-heirs with Christ, which means he said, I have position. I'm going to give you position. That's what Paul meant when he said we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. He's passed on to us blessing and purpose multiple times in the New Testament. The Bible says not only are we co-heirs with Christ, but it says we have an inheritance. Everybody shout an inheritance. In Christ, you have position with the Father. You have a connection with the Father. You have prosperity with the Father, and you have position. That is all because of Christ. But the bad part is a lot of us in this room, we are tempted on a daily basis to give up what God has given us for the foolishness of this world that will never fill us up. We are still tempted like Esau to make the trade. See, the devil can't take anything from you, but he can tempt you to trade it. He can tempt you to trade away what God has given you. Tempt away, tempt to trade away your position, your blessing. See, part of the inheritance that God's given us is a plan and a purpose for your life. And that part of the plan and the purpose for your life that God has for you, it's not just to prosper you, but it's to bring glory and honor to your father. And all of us in this room on a daily basis, we are tempted and it doesn't feel like a temptation. It feels like a smart trade like Esau, man. He got a home-cooked meal. In the moment, I'm sure his belly was full and he was warm inside. But in hindsight, he looked back and I said, wait, wait, I traded what? He gave away his birthright for a bowl. He traded away this incredible blessing for a bowl. 
He goes on and says this. Check this out. It says, one day, one day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, here's, here's how he got himself in this fix. Like, what would, what would cause somebody like Esau, what would cause somebody like us to make such a dumb trade? A bowl for a birthright. This is one day while Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. And Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. So he walks in. He's been out hunting all day. And he comes in and he is famished, like his belly's rumbling and grumbling. And the only thing he can smell is stew. And immediately that's all he wants. And he's ready to lay it down. And so he makes this foolish trade. But the writer of this story is careful to note that in this moment, he's exhausted and he's hungry. Sociologists tell us this, that you should never make a decision. In fact, the word is halt. Everybody say halt. You should never make a major decision when you are hungry, when you are angry, when you are lonely, or when you are tired. That if you make a major decision under any one of those four uh, situations, you are likely to make a bad decision. And I want you to notice that Esau is two of the four. He's exhausted and he's hungry. And so he walks in, in the middle of feeling hungry and being exhausted, he makes the trade of this incredible place, a position in favor with the father for a bowl of stew. Now, let me make it just real practical for us. How many of us in this room have ever heard, you never go to the store when you're hungry? Oh, look at y'all. And you think, is that true? I mean, maybe that's just like an urban legend. Maybe that's what mom said. Like, I know it's true because if I go to, I don't go do much shopping, but if I go to the store and I'm hungry, we're getting like 18 boxes of Cocoa Puffs. Like, no one, no one leaves hungry with like, you know, look at all these Brussels sprouts we bought. No, we don't even go that direction. This is so crazy. It's not an urban legend. It's not just what mom said or it's not just what grandma told us. There's lots of scientific evidence that tells you you should not go to the store hungry. Here's a couple things they have found out, and I think it's interesting. Number one thing that they have found out, sociologists and scientists through all kinds of experiments, they found out when people go to the store hungry, number one, they're far more likely to buy food that's not good for them. So you might typically buy, and you guys know this, right? But again, it's, it's backed up by science. You might typically buy food that's healthy. This is when you're buying the little Debbies. This is when you're buying the stuff you're getting up at midnight to eat. Come on. Oh, I'm not the only one. Come on. Temptation is when little Debbie calls your name at midnight. My wife's like, you better not cheat on me. I'm like, does little Debbie count? <laughs> So we not only buy food that's worse for us, the second thing they found out, this is crazy, is they did an experiment with, where they took a group of shoppers and they injected all the group of shoppers with, with some stuff. Half the group of shoppers got injected with saline solution, which did nothing to them. The other half of shoppers got injected with something called a, hor a hormone called ghrelin. What ghrelin does, it is increases your hunger. Here's what they found out. People injected with the hormone ghrelin paid more than the people who were not injected, which means when you're hungry, you're willing to pay more. You're willing to sacrifice more to get what you want. And number three, they found out that people who shop when they're hungry, they not only buy more food, not only pay more for the food and buy worse food, but they're the suckers buying the stuff by the checkout lines. You always want to, who buys that? People who shop hungry. Here's why this is important. Because the same way when you have a physical hunger, you make bad decisions in the grocery store. When you have a soul hunger, we are likely to make a bad decision in the world we live. We will sell ourselves short to get stuff that we don't need, and we sacrifice stuff that God died for us to have. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Don't trade what you want most 
for what you want in the moment. See, the temptation is for all of us when we're hungry, when we have, a, when we have this passion and desire on the inside of us, when we have a soul thirst, we are willing to do whatever it takes to get that thing filled. If you don't believe me, let me give you a couple examples. Show me a son who was raised with a dad who never gave him approval, and I will show you a man who spends his life trying to earn the approval that his father never gave him. Show me a girl who never got the love and affection of a father, and I'll show you a girl who is probably giving herself away to men because she never got the approval and sex... uh, and attention of her father. See, because when there's this hunger on the inside of you and it's not satisfied, we try to get it satisfied anywhere we can. And anytime you satisfy a soul hunger, you are making a trade for what God gave you and who he called you to be to get something that only satisfies in the moment. Come on, somebody. See, this is why Jesus said things like this. Jesus He understood that all of us have a soul hunger. You come into this world with a passion and a hunger and a desire that only he can fill. And he says things like this. He comes along and he says, I'm the bread of life. What he's trying to say is that just it's this metaphorical way to understand who he is, that he can fill you and satisfy you in a way that nothing else in this world can. He goes on and says things like this. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's saying you can keep filling yourself with food and never be satisfied until you fill yourself with me. He goes on, he says things like this to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, this woman who's, who's trying to find intimacy and trying to fill herself with a relationship. And no matter how many guys she marries and no matter how many men she sleeps with, she's continually empty and Jesus knows it. And so he says this to her, he says, you keep drinking the water you're drinking and you're just going to keep being thirsty. But if you'll drink the living water, because that's who I am, he says, you will never thirst again. What he's saying is there is a way to get satisfied in this world that this world can never satisfy you. And it is only in Christ. And if you don't get filled with him, you will trade away your blessing. You'll trade away your planning. You'll trade away your purpose. Come on. How many of us in this room, come on, man, we are trading our birthright for a bowl. It may not be lentil stew, but come on, we're trading away. We're eating bowls of popularity. Because, man, we just, we just bowls, of, bowls of Instagram and bowls of Facebook. We're putting ourselves out there. We're exposing ourselves. We're putting out all kinds of risky pictures because we just want the likes. Man, we're trading away our birthright for a bowl. We're trading away. Come on, some of us are eating bowls full of success. You might have got a $10,000 a raise, a year raise by taking the job, but you've sacrificed your family and you're hardly ever in church anymore. You traded away your birthright for a bowl. We do it all the time, man. We make decisions, and we don't understand how significant the moment is. But looking back, we've traded our birthright for a bowl. We've traded our legacy for lentils. Don't make the trade. It's not worth it. Come on, church. What is, what is the bowl moment? What is the bowl moment in your life right now? What are you, what's the decision you're tempted to make right now? And in the moment, it feels like it's worth it. But if you'll step back and realize that it's going to cost you far greater than you thought, first thought, Esau traded soup for position. And it's so easy for us to sit in judgment and look back and say, what a fool. And probably every one of us in this room have our own soup story. We've made decisions and we can't believe we made it. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I slept with them. I can't believe I hung out. I can't believe I took that job, quit that job. I can't believe I went that direction. 
I can't believe I went to that internet site. I can't believe I had that conversation. And they are bold moments. And every time you have a bold moment, it is costing you something. You are losing part of the position and part of the plan that God has for you, your life when you go the wrong direction and give in to the temptation and lose what Jesus died for you to gain. Bold moments. The writer of Hebrews, he's, he's trying to get us to understand the weight of what this guy Esau did. And without even thinking of Esau, he's trying to think, like, who can, I, who can I pitch out to the people who would understand a person who made a bad decision? And he pulls out the name Esau out of all the people in Scripture, out of all the people in history. He says, the best person I can give people as an example of don't be like is Esau. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, he says this. He says, lest there be any fornicator. Everybody read this. He said, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, if, if I were to ask, I know it's not a word we use a lot in culture anymore, and some of you have maybe never used the word, but do you know what a fornicator is? Fornicator is very much a sexual word, and when you understand what Esau did, you're like, wait a minute, he didn't do anything sexual. He sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, yet the writer of Hebrews calls him a fornicator. And it's significant because every word in Scripture is used for a purpose. It's not there on accident. And so when you understand what a fornicator is, a fornicator is two things specifically. Number one, a fornicator is a prostitute that sells himself for a price. And that's exactly what Esau did. He sold himself he had a price. He was for sale. It's like the businessman on the 39th floor. His day was over several hours ago, but he had a lot to do, and he's trying to wrap things up before he goes home. All, most of the office lights are out, and he's just trying to get things done so he can go. The cleaning lady shows up, 39th floor, beautiful. He's never seen her before. He's attracted to her. He grabs his briefcase, makes his way for the door, and he stops next to the cleaning lady, and he says, man, I... I'll be honest, I can't help but to notice you. You are beautiful. I'm a wealthy businessman. He said, I would be willing to pay you a million dollars for you to spend the night with me. And man, she thought about it. You know, man, all the bills she had to pay, all the pressures of being, you know, the things that she had to do. And she thought, man, a million dollars, that would be the answer. And so she looks at him and she says, for a million dollars, I would sleep with you. I would spend the night with you for a million dollars. He said, would you do it for 500 and she said, are you kidding me? She said, what do you think I'm, a cheap prostitute that's for sale? And he said, we've already established that, and now all we're doing is negotiating the price. What's your price? What is the price that God's blessing in your life that you'll sell it for? Will you sell it for a quick fix? Will you sell it for success? Will you sell it for a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a moment in the sack? Will you sell it for the next business deal? What will you sell it for? What is your price? See, when you make a decision, it's non-negotiable. There's no price that's worth my position in Christ. There's no price worth my blessing in Christ. There's no price worth my inheritance in Christ. I'm not for sale. Come on, everybody say that. Not for sale. Listen, I'm not giving up my birthright for a bowl. I'm not giving up my legacy for some lentils. I am not for sale. But you have to look at it and you have to wonder, how did Esau get here again? Because he allowed himself to get hungry. One of the things that, again, the shoppers, uh, the, 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 the scientists told us about shoppers is this, is if you want to make sure you, you're a smart shopper, then have a, have a small snack before you go shopping. 
So I want you to know every time you show up here on Sunday, our goal is for you to have a meal, for you to have, and through the week, I would encourage you to listen to some podcasts, that you fill yourself up, that you spend some time in worship, that you drop in some music, and you fill yourself up so you are far less likely to slip on the slippery slope of sin. Get filled up so you're not tempted to sell out. But I think most of all, Esau probably... He probably just didn't see the significance of the moment. All he saw was the stew. And I think it's easy for all of us in this room as we live our life to think that moments, not all of them matter. There's some that matter, but not all of them. If I were to ask you, what, what are the five most important moments in your life? Probably most of you in this room could probably rattle them off pretty quick. If I gave you a few minutes, certainly all of us could think of five significant moments in our life. For me, I can come up with five easy. Five, the five most significant moments in my life are easy. Number one, March 19, 1989, the day I got saved. Because I got moved from darkness to light. I got transformed from being a child of wrath to a child of God. I got saved by grace. I was blind and now I see. Come on, somebody. That's the day I got saved. Anybody here thankful for the day that Jesus changed you and made you his kid? Most significant moment of my life. Second most significant moment of my life was in June 1993 when I got married. While we were dating, ultimately, uh, I, I, was, I was single because I wasn't married, but I went from being single to married, having my significant other for life, most, one of the most important days in my life. Third most important day in my life was, I'm thankful for all my kids, but it was our first one that I moved from not being a dad to being a dad, being in that hospital room, watching our daughter born, and it was just profound, and losing sleep and money was even more profound. You hemorrhage everything that's valuable for that precious child. But it's cool, man. Like, I wasn't a dad, and I, I'm a dad. June 1996, Kayla was born. Fourth most significant moment of my life is, was April 1993. First time I walked into a church as a pastor. I wasn't just an attender. I was a pa pastor, Steve. And I was humbled and honored that God had given me that opportunity and got to serve in a position at a church. Um, my fifth most significant moment was December 11th, 2012. That was the first time I stood on this platform and preached. First time I got the opportunity to stand here and potentially see, are you a fit for me? Am I a fit for you? And uh, it, it worked. Amen. <laughs> but here's why I share that. Here's why I share it. Watch, because sometimes you don't recognize how significant a moment is and how significant a decision is. It, it, like really, the only way you can really recognize it is by hindsight. In order for hindsight to work, it takes two things. It takes time and perspective. Again, in the moment, in the moment, you don't really see it as important. When I stood on this platform, I wasn't sure if it was significant or not. If it didn't work out, it wasn't significant. If you said, you're not a fit, I'm not a fit for you, that's fine. It wasn't significant. If I looked and said, I don't want to be here, it wasn't significant. But here we are seven years later, and God has done a great work at Faith Church, and we've grown from over 400 to almost 3,000. I can look back and say, that was a significant moment. Come on, here's why. Because again, significance is seen with time and perspective. As more time has gone on, I've looked back at that moment, December 11, 2012, and said, yeah, that was significant. In perspective, not just for me, but some of you in this room, God's done incredible things in your life. And not because of me, it's all because of Jesus, but it's what God is doing at Faith Church. So it's been significant for all of us. Come on, somebody. Life change happens here. And here's why I tell you, because I don't think that Esau recognized the significance of the moment of the stew. 
All he saw was he was just eating. But I promise you, as time went on, and he looked back the next day, in the next week, in a year later, I promise you, the further away he got from that decision, the more he regretted it. Time and perspective. There was a lady uh, in the last church I pastored. Her name was Shirley Gillespie. She has since gone home to be with the Lord. And Shirley was a great, a really a great lady. She came up to me one Sunday and, you know, I, I, I love to read. I've always been a pretty ferocious reader and I, I love having a library. And so she brought me this stack, this five volume stack of commentaries. And I love old books and they were old. They had, they were over a hundred years old. And she said, Pastor, I found these for you. She said, I thought you would enjoy them. And I took them and I was thankful to have them. And I put them on my shelf. I had about 7,000 volumes in my personal library. And so after about three years after she gave me these books, I needed to kind of go through my library. It was just kind of big and out of control. And so I started going through books I just needed to get rid of. And I moved my library from about 7,000 volumes down to about 3,000. And I took about 4,000 books and I set them out, told my church, hey, I got these books. If you want them, you can have them. You know, and most of the books were gone. A handful of the books that were left, I honestly, I just threw them away. And while I was thankful for this set of books, I just didn't have room for them. So I honestly, standing here, I can't tell you if someone took them that I gave them away or I threw them away. I don't know. But they're just a set of books. Shirley called me about three years ago. And she said, hey, Pastor Steve, it's this Shirley Gillespie. I said, hey, Shirley, how's it going? I'm like, oh, I hope she's not calling for a book set back. She said, uh, she said hey, she said, I just wanted to call you. She said, um, she said I, I don't want any money. She said, but I was watching the Antique Roadshow. And she said, I noticed the set of books on the Antique Roadshow is the exact set of commentaries that I Do you remember the set of commentaries I gave you? I'm like, yeah, I remember. She said, uh, she said, well, this, uh, this, this antique book dealer was looking at these books, and he said these were a significant find. And she said, the thing that struck me the most was that the antique book dealer said it was not just a rare set, but the handful of sets that are left, most people have lost the final volume, the book of Revelation. And she said, the reason, she said, I was so excited because I know not only did I give you this same set, but the set was in good order, and I gave you all five volumes. And so she said, again, I don't want any money, but she said, you need to take these things and get them. You need to find out the volume because on TV, they said they're worth $150,000. I know. That's what I did. I think I even cussed a little. I don't know. I was like, what? It's like $150,000. And I never told her. I didn't have a heart to tell her. I'm like, awesome. Thanks. I'll check that out. And I got off the phone and wept. Now, here's, here's why I say it. Is in the moment, she only gave me five books. That's all she gave me. But as time went by, I looked back at that moment with more information and realized she didn't give me books. She gave me my kid's inheritance. And I sold it for a bowl of stew. I'll tell you another story about Shirley. It's the first time she ever came to our church, probably about three years before the time she gave me the books. And um, <laughs> she hung out after church to talk to me, and I, I didn't know her. And, you know, y'all will see this. I, I hang out here typically in every service. Everybody wants to talk. And she came up and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And, and I was glad to talk to her, but, you know, it's like your first Sunday here, like save some for next Sunday, right? And so she left and about a week later, my phone rings in my office and uh, my uh, 
My assistant says, hey, there's a lady on the phone for you. Her name is Shirley Gillespie. And I recognized her name. I remember talking to her. Um, and so honestly, in that moment, I was like, uh, you know how when you're not sure you're going to take a call? I get a lot of phone calls, and I don't always, depending on what's going on, and I wrestled, do I want to answer this call? And I didn't want to, but I felt like just a still, small voice of the Holy Spirit say, you need to take this call. And so I picked the phone up, and she said, hey, Pastor Steve, she said, this is Shirley Gillespie. I said, yeah, I know, Shirley, what's going on? And we just chatted. There was nothing of significance or consequence. It didn't feel like it. She asked me about the, the uh, translation I preached from and things like that, and we talked probably 15 minutes on the phone and hung up. And from that time, Shirley was there every time the doors were open. And she's kind of the church member that you want. She gave, she served, she showed up, she was faithful. Man, I love Shirley. She's a great lady. About a year, year and a half after Shirley started coming to our church, she caught me again after a Sunday. And she said, hey, Pastor Steve, she said, uh, she said, you probably don't remember this, but she said, I called you the week after my first visit here. And I remembered it. She said, what you don't know was I had gone through just a very difficult season in life. She said, I was depressed. She says, I was on medication. And she said, I just was a, she says, I was a wreck. And she said, I came and visited your church. And for the first Sunday, she said, I just felt, man, the presence of God. I felt peace. But she said, I just was so distraught. She said, I had made the decision to call you. And she said, I decided that if you didn't answer the phone, I would know that my life was over. And she said, I decided I was going to take my life if you didn't answer the phone. And she said, you didn't know that. And she said, you answered the call and just talked to me. And she said, I just knew in the moment that God had something for me. Now, to me, that was just a phone call of hundreds that I get. To her, it was life or death. Is this a stack of books? Ended up being 150, potentially $150,000. See, what I want you to know is that, that when you make a decision, the enemy wants to tempt you because he can't take what God gave you, but he can tempt you to trade it away. And it's not just about you. It's bigger than you. That when you fall, you fall, and you impact your family, and you impact your friends, and you impact your community. When you fall, you pull other people down with you. When I think of Esau, see, to narrow your decision down to how it only affects you in the moment is selfish and short-sighted. See, it's not just about, it's not just hindsight looking back saying how important was that decision. What I came to tell you today is that God wants to give you insight that every decision you make is important. Every decision as you are led by the Spirit of God, as you do the honorable thing, as you fight temptation and don't fall on the slippery slope of sin, as you stand up in God's grace and God's strength, God is protecting you and God is honoring you and God is causing you to walk in your plan and your purpose. But it's not just for you. God put you here for a purpose that's bigger than you. It's for people around you. Come on somebody don't sell your birthright for a bowl don't give out your position for something so insignificant you would never trade your wife for a watch you would never trade a pen for your 401k why would you trade your place and position in Christ for a short-term fix for a quick feel good for a hop in the sack for a short-term relationship just so you can close the contract it's not worth it and when you hear about Esau watch I'm almost done Esau because God first introduced himself to this guy by the name of Abraham. Abraham had kids and his firstborn, Isaac. He became known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's tragic about that name is that really he should have been known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But Esau sold his birthright. And it didn't just affect him. It affected his kids, 
and his kids' kids, it affected his family line for generations for a bowl of soup. He sold his legacy for some lentils. The bowl isn't worth your birthright nor the birthright of all those you're connected to. This week, you're going to be tempted to make decisions. And in every decision you make, there's a trade. You will get something you want, no doubt about it. But if you're not careful, you will give away something that you one day will regret. How many of you in this room would say, Pastor Steve, I, I, want, I want the wisdom of insight to make the right decision and avoid the wrong trade? Come on. Father, I pray for every person in this room, including myself. God, give us, give us insight. God, in foresight, all there is is just discouragement and regret. But Lord, with your help and with the Holy Spirit, God, every time we find ourselves, when we make decisions about our life and relationships and money in our business, God, we can make the right decision. We don't have to sell out our birthright for a bowl. And so Lord, I pray, God, give us the insight to make the right decision and avoid the wrong trade that we will surely one day regret. Father, let us know the weight that we carry in our decisions that don't just affect us, but all those we're connected to. Father, I thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody who agreed said amen. Amen. God bless you guys, man. We'll see you next week for the final week, Slippery Slope.